Let's bow together in prayer. Our Lord, as we bow before you this morning, we do desire that our lives be fresh, fresh with, fresh with physical vigor, fresh with a desire to know you better, fresh with a desire to grow in the knowledge of your word, to grow closer to you, to grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ so that people as they look at our lives may say that may see you in us and that you may give us the opportunity the entree to speak to those around us for Jesus Christ to show them their need of salvation and the provision that you have made for sin we are so grateful, Lord, for what you do, for all that you do for us, for what you did for us at Calvary, for Jesus dying in our place, bearing our penalty, so that by putting our trust in him and him alone, we can have eternal life and be a part of your family and pass from death to life. Father, guide us as we study now this morning, I pray in Jesus' name, amen. So we start this morning, I'd like to tell you the story of the atheist and the bear. One day an atheist was walking through the woods admiring all the beauty that the accident of evolution had created. What majestic trees, what powerful rivers, what beautiful animals, he said to himself. As he strolled alongside the flowing river, he heard a rustling in the bushes behind him. He turned to look. There was a seven-foot grizzly bear charging toward him. The man screamed in horror and ran as fast as he could away from the giant bear. As the bear's shadow fell over him, the man tripped and fell to the ground. Feeling the hot breath of the terrifying bear on his neck, the man rolled over. The bear loomed large over him, raising its fierce paws to strike him dead. As the bear's shadow fell upon his face and his paws came down upon his chest, the atheist screamed, Oh, help me, God! Time stopped. The river he loved suddenly stopped flowing. The trees stopped swaying. The bear froze. Then a bright light beamed down upon the man. A voice boomed all around him. I am God, and even though you don't believe in me, I'm here for all beings on this earth. The atheist felt relieved and confessed to God, I'm in this situation and wonder if you would get me out of it. You deny my existence your whole life. Teach others I don't exist and even credit creation to a cosmic accident, yet still you ask for my help. Am I to count you as a new believer? The atheist looked directly into the light and replied, It would be hypocritical of me to suddenly ask you to treat me as a Christian now, but perhaps you could make the bear a Christian. Very well, said the voice. The light went out. The river resumed running and the sounds of the forest returned. Then the bear dropped down from his terrifying stance, 
clapped its paws tightly together, bowed its head, and said, Thank you, Lord, for this meal, which I am about to receive. <laughs> well, that was a humorous way to bring us back into what we started studying last week, and that is 12 principles for maintaining spiritual freshness in our lives. And the first and the, the foundational principle was that we have a regular time with God, a time in the Word of God, a time in prayer, speaking to God. And we just uh, we started there last week. We looked at the first two principles. The, that is the first. The second principle is this. Is there someone I need to forgive? Am I holding a grudge? And we looked at that last week. Well, this morning we begin at the third principle. Remember the premise for our study. This, this, uh, the, the basic outline comes from a, a, a person named Selwyn Hughes who wrote a, a devotional guide and called Water for the Soul. And it's uh, in that he explains that he got a letter from somebody who was expressing his dismay at how his life had become just routine, his spiritual life had become routine, and he didn't sense his, the freshness of the, uh, and closeness of God that he wanted. And so Hughes came up with these 12 principles for maintaining spiritual freshness. So I'm taking his outline and combining a lot of other material with it and a lot of Bible with it as we look at this uh, this week and probably next week. Hopefully that will be all it will take for these 12 principles, but we'll see. We'll see how that goes. The third principle where we pick it up this morning is we must break decisively with everything of which Christ cannot approve. We must break decisively with everything in our lives of which Christ cannot approve. To turn that around, we would ask the question, is there something in my life an attitude or an activity of which God cannot approve? Is there something in my life, an attitude or an activity of which God cannot approve? Look with me at Romans chapter 6, verses 1 and 2. What shall we say then? Shall we go on sinning that grace may increase? By no means we died to sin. How can we live in it any longer? And in Romans 6, 11 to 14, in the same way, count yourselves dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you may obey its evil desires. Do not, do not offer the parts of your body to sin as instruments of wickedness, but rather offer yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and offer the parts of your body to him as instruments of righteousness, for sin shall not be your master because you are not under law, but under grace. And if you would turn back to Romans 13, Romans chapter 13, verses 13 and 14. Let us behave decently as in the daytime, not in orgies and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and debauchery, not in dissension and jealousy. 
Rather, clothe yourselves with the Lord Jesus Christ and do not think about how to gratify the desires of the sinful nature. What a powerful verse that is, isn't that? I, I love that. Clothe yourselves with the Lord Jesus Christ and do not think about, don't spend your time mulling over sin. Don't think about how to gratify the desires of the sinful nature. If we're going to have spiritual freshness, if we're going to have a spiritual vitality in our lives, we must break decisively with everything of which Christ cannot approve. This may be hidden sin that we are unwilling or unable to give up or that we're procrastinating about something that God has spoken to us about, about. That is, we must deal with the sin in our lives. We must deal with the sin in our lives. It's impossible to have spiritual freshness. It's impossible to maintain spiritual freshness if we're also embracing sin. If we're also thinking about how we might sin, it's impossible to maintain spiritual freshness. Now, one of the resources talks about the excuses that we usually use to justify wrong behavior. Uh, some of them sound a little like our kids when they do something wrong. The first one is this, since everyone does it, it must be all right. In other words, if other people around us, and particularly if Christians I know, are embracing sin in their lives, embracing the wrong things, thinking about how to gratify the sinful nature, if Christians around me are doing that, I guess it should be all right. Of course it's not. We wouldn't allow that excuse for our kids, would we? Well, everybody's doing it. Well, if Johnny jumps off a bridge, would you jump off a bridge too? You heard that one, right? Or, one, or some version of it. I heard that when I was a kid, and that was a long time ago. And, uh, and uh, we, we said that to our kids. That's no excuse for sin. Since everyone does it, it must be all right. Proverbs 14.12 says, There's a way that seems right to man, but the end thereof leads to what? Death. There's a way that seems right to man, but the end of that way leads to death. Another excuse we often use to allow sin in our lives is this, as long as I don't hurt anybody, it's okay. Well, at the very least, and by the way, it's impossible to sin even in your thinking without hurting somebody else. It's impossible to sin without hurting somebody else. But even if you buy into this as long as I don't hurt anybody, the trouble is sin hurts you and sin hurts me. Paul said that in 1 Corinthians chapter 6. Sin hurts us. We are the first people that sin hurts. Uh, also, you can write this down for your study, Le Leviticus chapter 5 and verse 17. Sin hurts us. At the very least, sin hurts causes a break in our fellowship with God. We don't lose our relationship with God. We can never lose our relationship with God. Once we have come to faith in Jesus Christ, we are saved and we are saved for eternity. We immediately receive, receive eternal life. Not 
life until we sin, but eternal life. So we can't lose our relationship with God, but we can lose that closeness, that that which we are talking about in this series. We can lose that closeness, that freshness, that spontaneity, that, uh, that sense of closeness to God. We can lose that. Another excuse that we sometimes use to justify sin is nobody will ever find out that I did it. But God finds out. In the garden, remember when Adam and Eve decided that after they had sinned, they, God came and He called to them, and they hid from Him. Guess what, folks? We can't hide from God. It's impossible to hide from God. Hebrews 4.13 says, Nothing is hidden from God's sight. Nothing is hidden from God's sight. Another excuse that we often use to justify wrong moral behavior, and by the way, the source for this is the navigators, is this, I'll stop after this one time. I'll stop after this one time. Well, anybody who's used that excuse knows that one doesn't work. Because... Galatians 6, 7, and 8 talks about a reaping and sowing principle in life. A reaping and sowing principle. What we sow, we will reap. What we sow, we will reap. The fifth excuse we often use to justify wrong moral behavior is, I didn't really do anything, all I did was think about it. Well, all sin begins in our thought life. All sin begins in our thought life. And if we let it have its way, it will make its way into our actual life. All sin begins in our thought life, and if we let it have its way, it will work itself into our normal, everyday, walk-around life. Matthew chapter 5, verse 28 tells us that sin in the thought life is the same before God as sin in the actual, the actual sin in our lives. So those are, are some of the excuses that we use. Now, one writer pointed out that every temptation is an opportunity to do good. Now, we don't look at it that way, right? When we look at temptation, we, read, we see it as there's nothing good about temptation, everything is bad about temptation, and yet I think the writer is, is, uh, rightly says every temptation is an opportunity to do good. Every temptation is an opportunity to grow into the character of Jesus Christ. Every temptation is as much an opportunity to do the right thing as to do the wrong thing. By the way, the author of that is Rick Warren in The Purpose Driven Life, which I know there's controversy about Rick Warren today, but despite the controversy, that is an excellent book. If you have never used it in your life, The Purpose Driven Life, it is nothing more than theology put to a 40-day regimen. It's great theology, great practical theology. 
So despite whatever uh, controversy there may, may be about him, I, I think it's a great book. And he is the one who said, every temptation is an opportunity to do good. Every temptation is an opportunity to grow into the character of Jesus Christ. Everything, every temptation is as much an opportunity to do the right thing as to do the wrong thing. Secondly, we have to understand that temptation in itself is not sin. It's what we do with temptation. To be tempted is not sin. It's what we do with the temptation that makes it sin or not. Jesus was tempted, yet He was without sin. That's what the book of Hebrews tells us. He was tempted, yet He was without sin. James chapter 1 and Matthew chapter 15 tell us that sin begins in the heart, in the thought life. In a moment, we're going to talk about Satan's part in temptation, but it can be summarized in this way. Satan's part in temptation is to cause us to doubt the seriousness of sin or to question God or to misuse and misquote the Word of God. Clearly, we see that in Genesis chapter 3 and Matthew chapter 4. Genesis chapter 3 is where Satan comes and tempts Adam and Eve. Matthew chapter 4 is where uh, the Spirit, this, this always got me. It was the Holy Spirit who led Jesus into the desert to be tempted of Satan for 40 days. It was the Holy Spirit who led Jesus into the desert to be tempted by Satan for 40 days and nights. So... We see it clearly in Genesis 3 and Matthew 4. Three areas of temptation we face. Uh, we, get, we see this in Genesis 3. We see it in Matthew 4. Ser three areas of temptation in our lives are the temptation to fulfill a legitimate need in an illegitimate way. Temptation to fill a legitimate need in an illegitimate way. How, why do we say that? Because remember one of the temptations that Satan brought to Jesus is turn these stones into rock. You've got to be hungry by now. And there's nothing wrong with hunger. God gave you hunger to remind you to eat. He reminds me a lot to eat. <laughs> but he tempted Jesus to fulfill that need in a wrong way by turning the stones to bread and thus trusting in himself, not God the Father. Uh, a second way that, a second area we're tempted in is to test God rather than believe God. To test God rather than believe God. We see that again in, in Jesus' temptation in Matthew chapter 4. Uh, throw yourself down from the temple. The Bible says in the Psalms that the angels will catch you up and you'll be fine and you won't even dash your foot against a rock. So just go ahead and do it. Let's test God. Let's see if God is true. Jesus didn't have to know if God the Father was true, did He? He already knew it. He didn't test Him. He didn't have to test Him. But Satan comes to us and says, well, you better test God because you know you can't always rely on Him. 
so he comes to us and tempts us to test God. A third area of temptation that we face is temptation to seek success without holiness. Remember the third temptation that Jesus uh, endured in the desert in Matthew chapter 4 was Jesus said, I'll give you all the kingdoms of the, of the world if you'll just bow down before me and you don't have to go through that nasty cross stuff. By the way, you realize that that was a legitimate offer. Satan is the God of this world, is he not? Isn't that what the Bible teaches, that Satan is the God of this world? And that was a legitimate offer on his part, offering to Jesus all the kingdoms of the world. All Jesus had to do was bow down before Satan. We face similar temptations, maybe not at that level, but temptation to seek success without holiness. Temptation to seek success without holiness. Well, in, in day 26 and day 27 of Rick Warren's book, I, I want to recommend those days to you because he deals with growing through temptation. Growing through temptation. He talks about how temptation works in our lives. Uh, four D's, desire, doubt, deception, and disobedience. Desire, doubt, deception, and disobedience. The first step is Satan identifies a desire in us, a desire toward evil, a desire to fulfill a legitimate need in an illegitimate way. Satan identifies a desire within us. Doubt, then, is the second step. Satan tries to get us to doubt what God has said about sin. That's what he said to Adam and Eve. That's what he said to Jesus. Has God said? Has God said? He, he just puts that little doubt in your mind. Well, has God really said this is wrong? Has God really said I shouldn't do this? Has God really said I shouldn't be involved in this? And he puts that little bit of doubt in your mind. The third step is deception. This is, this is something to never forget. Satan is incapable of telling the truth. You have that? Satan is incapable of telling the truth. He is a liar, and he is the father of lies and the father of liars. He's incapable of telling the truth. We see that deception in Genesis 3 and Matthew 4. The fourth step of how temptation works, we have first desire, then doubt, then deception, and then the last step is disobedience. We finally act on the thought that we've been toying with in our minds. We finally act on the thought that we've been toying with in our minds. What we have to understand is we have to stop sin at the desire stage. We have to stop sin in our lives at the desire stage. Well, these are the steps that, that uh, Rick Warren suggests in overcoming temptation. Number one, refuse to be intimidated. 
realize that we are all tempted. Tempting, to be tempted is common to being human. To be tempted is common to be, being human. But temptation is not sin. Temptation is not sin. 1 Corinthians 10.13, everyone is tempted. Everyone is tempted. 1 Corinthians 10.13 says, but when you are tempted, not if you are tempted. Temptation is common to being human. So refuse to be intimidated. It's not a sin to be tempted. It's what we do with the desire, with the temptation that makes it sin if we yield to it. That's when it becomes sin. Now, by the way, I hope you'll write down 1 Corinthians 10, 13. It is a very powerful verse for every one of us in the battle against Satan in the battle against temptation. 1 Corinthians 10.13 No temptation has seized you except that which is common to man and God is faithful. He will make a way out. Now that, that verse is either true or it's not. Yeah, it's the two choices you have. It's either true that God, if we will, if we will cry out to Him in the midst of our temptation, in our midst of our need, to give us a way out. It's either true that he will give us a way out or it's false and then you might as well get rid of the rest of the scripture too. So it's a powerful verse to help us in the area of temptation. The second thing that he suggests is that we must recognize our pattern of temptation and be prepared for it in other words, when am I most tempted? Is, is it when I'm tired? Is that when temptation is the worst in my life? Is it when I'm bored? Is that when I let my mind run and I think about things that I ought not to let my mind go on? Is that when it is? It's when I, is it when I'm tired? Is it when I'm bored? Is it bored? Is it when I'm hungry? Is it a certain time of the day or time of the night? When is it? Recognize the pattern of temptation and prepare for it. And prepare for it. Number three, request God's help. 1 Corinthians 10.13, Hebrews 4.15 and 16. Hebrews 4.15 and 16, request God's help. Number four, refocus your attention on something else. Refocus your attention on something else. Stop thinking about that. Resist the thought. Turn your mind to something else. If, if there is a physical attraction to sin, a temptation, leave that area. Leave physically and go to someplace else. Leave the situation. Number five, reveal your struggle to a godly friend or group. Um, I would probably keep it to a godly friend. But enlist somebody else. Enlist somebody else who can help you. And at the, at the very least, they, if they, even if they don't have answers for you, at the very least, they will pray for you. 
Ecclesiastes 4, 11 and 12 says this, If two lie down together, they will keep warm, but how can one keep warm alone? Though one may be overpowered, two can defend themselves. A cord of three strands is not easily broken. All throughout the New Testament, that's, that's Ecclesiastes 4, 11 and 12, but all throughout the New Testament, we have one another passages. Use that awesome electronic Bible app that you have and type in one another and see how many New Testament one another's come up. The way that we are to care for each other. So reveal your struggle to a godly friend uh, or a group. Number six, resist the devil. Resist the devil. 1 Peter 5 8, James 4 7. Resist the devil and he will do what? Flee from you. Resist him. Say, I'm not listening. You can talk all you want, Satan. I'm not listening. Resist him. Resist him by wearing the armor of God. Resist him by wearing the armor of God. 1 Peter 5, 8, James 4, 7, Ephesians chapter 6, talking about the armor of God. In daily discipleship, uh, I tell you, I almost can't read that for a day without finding some great application to my life or to the things that we're teaching. I'm said this during World War II. One of the, by the way, he was a Marine. If I've never said that, he was a Marine. Good stuff, Ryan, right? During World War II, one of the greatest threats to Marines in the South Pacific was snipers. An enemy soldier armed with a rifle and a telescopic sight would hide himself in a tree and pick off our guys one by one. But in all my time in the Pacific, I never saw a sniper armed with a tank. First of all, it would be really tough to get a tank up a tree. And then it would be very difficult to hide it once you got it there. A tank is a powerful weapon, but it's not the right weapon for a sniper. And he says the Christian life is a spiritual warfare and says that in order to win, we must use the right weapons. We must use the right weapons. The strongholds of Satan include ignorance of the word of God and prejudice against it, indifference to spiritual truth and the allurements of the world. To overcome these powerful forces, we can't rely on our own strength or wisdom. We must place our confidence in the spiritual weapons God has given us. Christian, we cannot win our spiritual battles with human ingenuity, human wisdom, or human strength. We must call on the mighty name of the Lord and find our strength in Him. He tells of another time that when he thinks about the armor of God, he thinks back to a day when he went into another kind of battle without the proper equipment. He said, I was part of a marine invasion force in the South Pacific and our landing craft had just reached the island when it was hit by two enemy shells. I was not a Christian at the time and the essence of what I yelled to the other men was, let us depart here speedily. (laughs) 
So we ran across the beach and began making our way toward the airfield, which was our objective. Pretty soon a sergeant came to check on us. When he saw me, he said, Imes, where's your helmet? I must have lost it, I said. He looked again and said, Imes, where's your duty belt? My duty belt had my ammo pouches, my first aid kit, my bayonet, and all kinds of other things. It must be in the landing craft. And then the sergeant got really exasperated and said, as a matter of fact, Imes, where is your rifle? <laughs> he said, in my rush to get out of the landing craft, I had left everything behind. There I was, hopping around from tree to tree, from bush to bush, with no equipment, no weapon, absolutely worthless to the cause. <laughs> but that's the way we do spiritual warfare sometimes, isn't it? We're hopping around from tree to tree without the proper equipment. I'm says, Paul said that if we want to avoid that situation in the Christian life, we're to put on the full armor of God. We're to be growing in faith. We're to be growing in hope. We're to have the helmet of salvation. Put on the full armor of God. Number six was resist the devil. Number seven is realize your vulnerability. 1 Corinthians 10.12 is a great warning for every one of us which says this, so if you think you are standing firm, be careful that you don't fall. That you don't fall. If you think it can't happen to you, you are putting yourself in danger. You're putting yourself in danger. Well, that leads me to the last thing I want to say about temptation and dealing with sin in our lives. There was an article in Church Leaders Top 100 2013 edition. Seven ways to avoid sexual sin. Seven ways to avoid sexual sin. Let me give you quickly these seven ways. Number one, don't say it can't happen to you. Don't say it can't happen to you. Number two, repent of your pride and self-righteousness in, in this area. It is our pride that allows us to push the envelope and think that we are the exception to the rule. Pride keeps us from getting the help that we need. Number three, put all the needed safeguards in place and keep them there. For one thing, he says, and I know that you have to make allowances, many of you, for your work situation. You don't have control over this. I understand that. I'm sure he understands that. But he says this, don't be alone if you can help it with a person of the opposite sex. Number four, be really accountable to others, not just in word. Number five, make your wife your partner in purity. Now this is important, and this is a quote from the article. Your wife knows enough to, excuse me, your wife needs to know enough to be prayerful, but not so much that she's paranoid. I think that's a good statement. Make your wife your partner in purity. Make sure you have regular intimacy so you're not looking for intimacy somewhere else. Your social media, Facebook, cell phone, 
All of that should be open to each other. Number six, when in doubt, err on the side of caution. Make good decisions. Never forget that we are in a spiritual battle with real winners and real losers, number seven. So don't say it can't happen to you. Repent of your pride and self-righteousness. Put all needed self-guards in place. Keep them there. Be really accountable to others, not just in word. Make your wife your partner in purity. When in doubt, number six, err on the side of caution. Number seven, never forget that we are in a spiritual battle with real winners and real losers. The third principle is break decisively with everything of which Christ cannot approve. The question for us is, is there something in my life, an attitude or an activity of which God cannot approve? Well, I just have about three minutes to introduce principle four. Well, let's get with it. <laughs> principle number four, daily open yourself to the power of the Holy Spirit. Daily open yourself to the power of the Holy Spirit. That's Ephesians chapter 5 and verse 15. If you would turn to that passage, Ephesians chapter 5. It's a great passage of the Word of God starting at verse 15. Be very careful then how you live, not as unwise but as wise, making the most of every opportunity because the days are evil. Therefore do not be foolish but understand what the Lord's will is. All right? I'd like to know. Paul, tell me what it is. Paul's very accommodating. Did you ever notice that? And he tells us, be careful how you live. Be not as unwise, but as wise, making the most of every opportunity because the days are evil. Don't be foolish. Understand what the Lord's will is. Number one, don't get drunk on wine which leads to debauchery. Now, what he's saying is, I don't know if the Ephesians had a big problem with wine. I, I'm not sure. I'm not sure if that they were regularly drunken, so Paul said, I had to deal with drunkenness. I really don't think that's what's happening here. I think what he's trying to do is tell us what it means to be filled with the Spirit. To be filled with the Spirit, the word filled has the idea of be under the control of. Be not drunk with wine but be filled with the Spirit. He's making an analogy. The way wine controls a person's thoughts, words, physical, um, the way they move physically, the way wine controls those things is the way the Holy Spirit should be controlling our lives because we are yielding control of the Spirit so that the thoughts that we think are the thoughts of the Spirit, the thoughts of the Word of God as the Holy Spirit takes the Word of God and applies it to our lives. The way we see things has, uh, is because of the Holy Spirit's influence upon our lives, that we have given control to the Holy Spirit. Be filled with the Spirit. I, I actually prefer the word, and I, I think probably most people don't like it, but it's okay. It's for me, not for you. <laughs> I like the idea of domination. Be dominated by the Holy Spirit. Be dominated by the Holy Spirit. Alcohol dominates a person's life, doesn't it, if it gets control? It dominates a person's life. I, I 
what I like the thought that Paul is saying, what I want you to do is yield to the Spirit so that you'll be dominated by the Spirit. And when you and I are dominated by the Spirit of God, we are dominated by the Word of God. Because the Spirit takes the Word. The Spirit is the author of the Word of God. Imagine that. He lives within us. The author of the Bible lives within us. What a thought. What an awesome thought. And when we yield to the Holy Spirit, when we real control of the Holy Spirit, when we allow the Holy Spirit to dominate our, our lives, He allows us and helps us to live out the Word of God in our lives. So don't get drunk with wine, which leads to debauchery. Instead, be filled with the Spirit. Speak to one another. So, so the control of the Spirit in our lives, the, the living wisely, living out the will of God in our lives is to be under the control of the Spirit in our lives. Also, verse 19, speak to one another. It will affect our speech. Speak to one another with psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. Sing and make music in your heart to the Lord. So don't say, I, I can't carry a tune in the basket. Because it's saying, speak to one another with psalm, hymns, and spiritual songs. Sing and make music. Where? In your heart. All right? No one else is listening there, you know what I mean? It can always sound like you're in the shower in your heart. Don't you wish you could take those acoustics and just... Okay, that's a whole other story. Uh, speak to one another with psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. Sing and make music in your heart. Always giving thanks. Be a thankful person. If you and I are under the control of the Spirit, we will be a thankful person person and then finally verse 21 submit to one another out of reverence for christ and paul's thoughts then go to relationships where there is uh, an authority and someone who responds to that authority and so he starts to talk about the home and the work life the home and the work life and he's saying, basically, if you want to know if you're filled with the Holy Spirit of God, if you want to know if you're under control of the Spirit of God, first of all, listen to your speech. Second of all, look at your home and look at your work life, and you'll know. We have more to say about that. We'll pick it up next week. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for these principles that can uh, help us. And there may be many in our midst who don't feel that lack of spontaneity, who feel that closeness to you and feel that freshness. And I'm so thankful for that. But for those, Lord, who may be sensing that distance from you, I pray that these principles and the further principles that we will learn will help us to keep our relationship with you open and fresh. In Jesus' name, amen.